Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. This episode of Sprogcast was recorded live in Leeds on the 28th of October 2017. Our special guests are Sheena Byram, Claire Harbottle, Fran Bailey, Rinneka Schramm and Mia Scotland. We've got a really interesting discussion coming up covering birth and postnatal care, local and national issues and some really great encouraging words for new and student midwives. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to invite the panel to introduce themselves. So I'm Karen, that's Mark. You can probably tell that that's Mark. Um, and I'm going to get everyone else just to very quickly say who you are and what your background is. Please. Here we go. We're going to pass the mic along. Yeah. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name's Sheena, and I'm a midwife. I've been a midwife for 40 years, and um, I live about an hour away from here, so I'm a northern girl. And um, I've worked in all areas of midwifery practice, latterly being a head of midwifery at the same maternity unit as the uh, obstetrician further down the line. So really gr- delighted to be here. Hi, everybody. My name's Mia Scotland. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and I specialise in the perinatal area. So before birth, during birth and after birth, preparing people for birth. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for inviting me. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm an independent midwife and artist. I live in Leeds. I work with across the whole of Yorkshire and beyond with the Yorkshire Stocks. Hello, my name is Rineke Schram. I'm a consultant obstetrician at East, in East Lancashire. Um, and I'm also a trustee of Birthrights, which is an organisation that promotes human rights in childbirth, promotes the concept of dignity, autonomy and respect in maternity care. Good afternoon, my name is Fran um, and I'm an NCT practitioner and tutor and I do lots of work around infant feeding and postnatal support, particularly with refugee and asylum seeking women here in Leeds. Thank you very much. I think it's worth saying right at the beginning that we've got such an array of varied experience here uh, that we should definitely make the most of it. But as you're sitting there thinking about birth, about the full scope of maybe your experience so far, questions that you might have, to have such an intimate group with such a panel, um, I think it'd be great to be thinking of what you could actually ask in this kind of setting. So who's going to kick it off? Um, So what do you think can be done uh, to move away from the medical model of birth as it is at the moment and do you think it's possible to ever move away from that? Thank you. Well, um, I think there's different degrees of medical models and it depends where you're working, what organisation and what organisation might, you, might um, uh, you might be working for. You have very many different cultures and culture I think is, is the, one of the most important uh, elements of what culture you have and when I'm thinking of culture um, and how that impacts on, um, on the birth women might, uh, might be having, it's, it's about a culture of respect, it's a, about a culture of collaboration, not just collaboration between midwives and between obstetricians, but between midwives, obstetricians and women, and the women's voice in in that, not just when women are having a birth, but in terms of organisation of services around what women women need. And it's also about a culture that includes the managers of the service as well, because they're the ones that often hold hold the, uh, the the purse strings. I agree with that, and I also think we have to think about women um, and their circles of influence because women very often are the ones who uh, instigate the medical model, not knowing that they're doing that. And so um, just thinking about someone's circle of influence is really important right from the antenatal period. And if you imagine a circle and imagine who's in that circle right from from when she starts to think about where she's going to have a baby or even before that when she's a youngster... Um, because what you know is that there are varying differences within families as to what they think birth should be like. So just to give you an example, I've work, recently worked in one organisation as an as a, as a independent consultant, and in that organisation, most women had epidurals, and most women thought that was fine because their mothers had had them, and, and it was, you know, that was the culture, but also their circles of influence were their, their parents and their families who said, oh, it's great, you know, you don't feel anything. Um, and, and so when you think about that, and so think about if, if a woman has antenatal education, that's one bit, but what a, what a, what a partner is saying and, and what a family is saying, what society is saying, 
And then that circle of influence gets smaller and smaller until the woman goes to have her baby wherever she chooses to have her baby. And then what happens is the organisation kicks in and that's the circle of influence. And then she hasn't got someone with her who is supporting what she really wants then and believes in what she wants, then it's, it's difficult. So I think as well as what Rinika said, I, I do think that um, there's, there's something about, well, there is definitely um, uh, about women and families and what they think is the right thing. So it's, both, it's like infant feeding, you know, it's sort of a, a whole sort of individually cultural um, uh, influence on, on a, the way that, that birth happens. And the more women are fearful and the more women want to have intervention... Um, then that's what we're going to do. So there's a, it's, a, it's a big thing. There's a lot of... It's multifaceted, I think. I don't know whether anybody's got anything else to add. How do we change the circles of influence and whose job is it to do that? It's everybody's. We've all got to change that. Um, I think one of the things that we've got is um, a risk-obsessed structure that tries to make women choose before they need to, what they're going to do at the next step and, and actually that needs to be something that's a little bit less um, primary letting women enjoy the pregnancy and letting them choose what they want to do as they go along you don't need to make a decision about where you're going to have your baby until, you know when you're going to labour in some, certain circumstances so why are we saying to women at booking where do you want to have your baby there's all kinds of things that you can just, just wait and see and not push too far and too fast there's a lot of um, fear around birth. There's a lot of fear around pregnancy. Um, and women are not necessarily given the, the education and support that they need. And the time. This is the, the time to have the conversations. If you're um, working in an NHS clinic and you've got 15 minutes, you can't have an engaged conversation in that amount of time to facilitate a woman's step-by-step decision-making as she goes along. So it's mostly about time. I think it's also about politics and economics. Um, and I think that one of the biggest dangers to medicalisation, or rather to non-medicalisation of childbirth, is privatisation. Um, so if we carry on going down a road of, road of privatisation, I actually genuinely feel quite worried for where medicalised childbirth is going to go with that. Um, but I think what is our ally, which isn't always the case, is science. Again, a cultural thing. The science that's coming through does always somehow seem to favour normality. And that, to me, is... Science hasn't usually been able to do that. Normally, science kind of comes out with what the researcher wants it to come out with. But I think science and evidence-based work in terms of childbirth is going to be something, hopefully, that will help drive this in the direction that we want it to go in. Um, I'm not... Obviously, we, we do want childbirth... We want medicine in childbirth. We know that, don't we? But it's just about getting the balance right between births where we don't need the medicine and births where we do. I think as well we have to stop polarising birth and, and talk, talking sort of in polarised views um, and a woman being in the middle and being confused as to what's safe and what isn't safe because really what's safe is what's safe for her, what she believes is safe for her. But we, we, there's always this sort of portrayal, by the, certainly by the press or by politicians or by the general public sometimes, is that... It's either or, so if you're talking about normal birth, you, you're not talking about safety, and if you're talking about medicalisation, you are, and actually there has to be both. So we, can, we should be talking about both, so we can have safety and we can, we can have physiology. They both think that they should go hand in hand and not sort of, you know, we shouldn't have the mother or the baby. It should be both. We should, and the mother should, should have a good experience and the baby should be healthy. So we, we, we have to, I think we have to change the conversation, basically. And UNICEF have done it with infant feeding and talk, stop blaming women and, uh, you know, moving away from that sort of guilt feeling that sometimes women feel because of the way that things are portrayed. So I do think we need to change the conversation. I think I just wanted to really echo what you were saying. I think, I think there is a danger when we keep talking about we want to normalise birth, that actually we're not listening to what women are actually saying. And sometimes, yes, those bigger political, global community issues are there, but actually we do, on a one-to-one -one basis, need to listen to what the woman in front of you is saying. You know, and if she genuinely is frightened, and if she genuinely wants to make a choice that maybe we don't necessarily feel is, is a necessity for her, she still is free to make that decision for her. 
I think that's absolutely right, that um, choice goes both, goes both ways, but what's important there is an informed, an informed choice, and the, 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 I suppose the issue that, um, that I get most often in my day-to-day you know, -day practice get, um, uh, get confronted with is the woman uh, asking for uh, a, a, an elective cesarean section where there isn't a, an obstetric um, reason for it. And in the past, I had great difficulty with that. But uh, I've, I've completely changed position on that now because it, it no longer made sense to say, yeah, I will support a woman who chooses to have um, uh, a vaginal uh, birth when really the, there are such risk factors that that isn't really the safest, uh, safest option for her. Um, and I will, I will um, uh, yeah, support her autonomy and, and her in, 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 uh, in, in choosing that, and I wouldn't do the same for a woman who chooses to, ha to have an elective cesarean section, even though there aren't any obstetric indications. That, that's not a, um, a sensible position to take, even if that choice that one makes has come from, um, from pressures and, and, and an expectation and a circle of influence, etc. That has got, but she is in that position, and you know she has capacity to make that decision. Who am I to say, you know, no, you can't, you can't make that decision? I do feel it's my role to have a discussion and ensure that she is fully informed um, and informed about that, about that. But I would always start out with a comment that, you know, you know, ultimately. We, I'd like to have a discussion with you, but we will do what you want. This is your choice. Um, so, so it, it, the, the circles of influence that Sheena talks about do bring people into a position that it can then, yeah, can then put you in a position where you think, well, that isn't the right thing, but you still have to support it. I remember the last time we had that discussion, Dennis Walsh was here, and uh, he, he raised the issue of the social implications uh, of women choosing uh, an elective cesarean section when there wasn't a clinical need. Oh, saying that, is, is there any other area uh, where we can make a choice about elective type procedures in the absence of clinical need in terms of a collective responsibility to a budget that's, that's raised via taxes? I, I agree to a, to a degree uh, um, with what Dennis is saying, uh, but I would, my, I, this is what I think about elective caesarean section. I believe that if a woman has, chooses to, if she opts for an elective caesarean section, and then she's given a continuity of care model with a midwife, like Claire offers, so she's given her own midwife then, to, who says, her own midwife says to her, that's fine, if that's what you want, and if that's what you want, when we get to the end of your pregnancy, then that's what you will have, but we'll take all the pressure away, and let's just work through your fears, and you know that I'm going to be there with you, and I'm going to listen to you, that I think that if a woman then chooses to have a caesarean, then, then that's what she should have, because there'll be other reasons why she's choosing, there'll be deep-rooted reasons why she chooses to have that caesarean, and that should be supported. But I do think that a lot of women are so fearful about having, why wouldn't you be fearful? When you think of the type of care that we're delivering, and that's the word of delivering, in maternity services right now, even though we might be the kindest, most compassionate midwives, that it isn't necessarily one that supports physiology or that supports the optimum um, birth experience for most women because they don't go in mostly don't go into a system that is supportive of their choices so I just believe that if we had a different way of working and if women had continuity then they wouldn't be as fearful to ask for things that sometimes in both in both respects, you know, sort of in the in the upper hill when they've had eight cesareans or or asking for you know do you know what I mean? So mm. it doesn't it's sort of with any choice. I think continuity of midwifery care would really make a difference in so many ways. Thought you were going to say. I was, Sheena, but that was pretty much what I was going to say. The question is, why is there so much fear? If you look at rates like in Mexico, there's 90% elective cesarean rates. We don't want to go that way. Yes, of course, I say of course, absolutely. If a woman is saying she wants a cesarean section, then that choice needs to be part of the plan. But really, we need to be asking why. Why are you this frightened? And yes, it might be individual case histories and what's gone on for that woman, and it is, but it is also cultural. And what's driving the fear? What messages, as well as personal experiences of maternity care, there's more than that. There's something else driving the fear um, and driving the language that we use around maternity services. 
So in a way, we're kind of all talking at different levels. There's a political level, there's a cultural level, there's the individual level as well. And at each level, it needs to be kind of looked at to try and help and, and drive the problem forward. One of the reasons um, sometimes women will say, I want it like this, right at the beginning, right at the outset, is because they want to be able to have control. Mm. And maybe that's because in other areas of their life or with a previous experience, they have lost that control and it's very traumatic for them. So if you, at the outset, say, yep, that's, that's on the table, that's fine, and then you can work with that woman through the continuity, yeah. through lots of support, through trying to unpick why, then sometimes you get to the end of that process and they'll still absolutely want to have that plan put in place that they had right at the beginning. But very often, because they don't feel backed into a corner, because they do feel listened to, because they do feel that no matter what, they will still have that control, maintain that control, mm. they will often choose a different path at the end and that's that's where what my position is generally is whatever you come to me with at the beginning that's fine that's great let's let's we can work with that but actually along the way you might want to change your mind and so long as positions don't become entrenched and people don't feel that they've been backed into a corner and forced to put their foot down and really have to stand their ground against against people trying to coerce them mm -hmm. they will change their mind often or, or maybe not but that's their that's their decision I've been one question. <laughs> that was a good question. Um, so we've talked a bit about continuity of care as an ideal, and it really helps women to make their own decisions and you know overcome some of the fear. But obviously, that doesn't really seem to happen a lot in the current NHS system. Um, so I'm just wondering how we can move more towards continuity of care, and you know whether it's a realistic thing that lots of women can be offered. So Leeds doesn't have a birth centre um, and it also has gone from a two and a bit percent um, home birth rate to less than one percent last time I looked. Um, and, you know, that's, that's not acceptable for a, an area that has 8,000 births a year. Um, there's no excuse. Well, there's lots to say about it. I think that we, it's definitely, uh, for me, it's definitely the gold standard. And when I was working as consultant midwife in East Lancashire, we developed one caseloading team because we had the capacity to do it and and it wasn't easy developing it it was it came with resistance from many parts but actually it was that team that really I think uh, Rinika would agree with me that it really shifted practice in that maternity unit from A to B um, and it, it's it, it's but some midwives said they wouldn't want to work in that way. So there's lots of reasons why. So you have managers who, who when they look into it, um, feel or, or, or there's some evidence that it might be more expensive, but they're not looking at long-term, they're looking at short-term. But in, in today's NHS, that's what they have to do because they're under a lot of pressure. So um, then there's, the, the, then there's the, the thing that some midwives say, well, I'd rather do three 12-hour shifts and have four days off and I don't want to be on call because they actually don't understand what it's like to be a caseloading midwife. So in fact, you know, I think this is a, a, big, a big thing that you don't know what you don't know. So, so how can midwives want... So how can women in Leeds know how brilliant it is to have their baby in a midwifery-led unit if there isn't one, and if because we had this in East Lancashire, there wasn't one, so we had to do a lot of work to get one or to get three, and then we uh, uh, then we had to uh, facilitate women's choices in going there because actually they didn't know what it was going to be like. So it's the same with continuity, and it, it, if women don't know what they're missing, they're not going to ask mm. for it, and if midwives don't know how brilliant it is, so we've got a lot of work to do on that. One of the things that I think has made a big difference to that is edu um, undergraduate education. So you all yeah. probably are doing caseloading. And caseloading was, was a revelation for me. It was brilliant. And I knew exactly how I wanted to work. Um, so you will experience um, having that continuity. You will experience having women that you, you, know, you follow all the way through their pregnancy. You, hopefully they're at their birth. You see them postnatally. And it's so rewarding. Mm -hmm. And you'll actually see, see that so long as your caseload is not too big, your work-life balance is okay. Yes, you've been on call a lot, but actually, how often are you called out? There are some restrictions on your lifestyle, but hey. Um, but actually, it's, it's so rewarding that it offsets all of that, and I love the way that I work. However, I have a caseload of roughly 10 women a year, um, and 30 to 40 might be a little bit more of a, a, an issue for me. However, I've got a huge geographical patch, so that would be offset. But I think there's a lot of fear of caseloading and of being on call a lot. And certainly when I was working 
partly independently and partly for the NHS, people would say to me, but how do you live a life? How do you have a family? How do you do all of those things easily? I think we shouldn't forget the, the, the bigger political question behind this because this is um, often about resources and we yeah. have a real good opportunity now to make, a, to make a difference through the LMSs. So the LMSs are you know, the local maternity services that, that Better Births envisage. They are now all starting to come up with their plans. They actually all submitted their plans um, just a couple of weeks ago. So the, those plans that have been submitted are still quite high level, but continuity of care is part of all those plans as is involving, you know, having a strong uh, maternal voice uh, in, in getting those plans and details. So there's a real opportunity now. But it's, it's very clear that we have to grasp that opportunity and that means, as communities, we have to grasp that because it, it, ultimately the purse strings are not being held by the, um, by the, by the LMSs. The purse strings are being held um, by the CCGs and who will ultimately have, uh, have the decision about where, where the money goes. But it, there's an opportunity now, I think, to, to, to show that the evidence, the, you know, we don't have an awful lot of evidence in maternity care. We, we often start doing things that we don't have evidence for, and then after 20 years we have to say, hey, why are we doing that? CTGs is a good example, you know. So there's an opportunity to say, actually, the evidence supports continuity of care as being giving you better outcomes, better quality of care, um, and less, uh, uh, you know, and cheap in the long run because there's less interventions. So let's use that evidence to drive LMS plans that, um, the, you know, that, that provide that continuity of care. When I qualified in 1994, we were very excited about changing childbirth. And um, Baroness Cumberledge, um, I was on a caseload bearing project back then. We had an 18% home birth rate. So, but we're now 20 plus years since changing childbirth. We've now got better birth. I can feel that stirring of excitement. But so what? Why is better birth any different to changing childbirth? I mean, look, if you read Changing Childbirth and you read Better Birth, you, sometimes you feel like you're reading the same bloody report. Um, so, so why? So why, why is better birth going to be any different to, to, to our thwarted expectations of changing childbirth? Mm. Right. Well, I was there before changing childbirth. So. You were there at the Peel Report. No, not quite. <laughs> not quite, but uh, just a little bit after that, actually. Um, I know I look good for my age. Um, I'm no, um, now. <laughs> well, that's all right, so. Mark. Um, so, right, first of all, it's not a report, it's a policy. Right. So, and the changing childbirth was just a, a report. This is a policy. This has to happen. Loads of money has been put to one side to make it happen. And whether it's a policy or whether it's a report, for those of you who are student midwives, what I would say to you is this is your time. Yeah. Right? So you're never going to get this opportunity again. Basically, we're in a moment that is the most important moment in the history of my career that we've been given this opportunity to do to change and if we don't do it, and, and, and sometimes we think other people are going to do it, right? So we, we sort of think, oh, well, it might be that, um, you know, such a body will be doing that because she's very vocal or, you know, or he's very vocal. And it ain't going to happen. It's you. And this is what I learned in my career. If there's anything I can pass on to you is that actually it's up to you. So even if it's a shift you're working on or if it's the... Uh, the, the, the classroom that you're ha the, the session that you're having with your lecturers or whatever you're doing um, into, in, a, in order to change something it's you it's your responsibility to influence that change right at your individual level but also at an organ you know try to influence your organizations try to influence and the other thing is that you can do it so if somebody had told me that when I was at your stage, I've said never, because I was like, oh, no, I'd never do that. But eventually I learned that it was, I could do it. And um, so you, you, all of us need to be part of it. We all need to play a part. And like Rinika was saying, the good thing about it is now we've got um, maternity voices, partnership, MVP. Is that right? I keep getting mixed up with all yes, these abbreviations, right. LMCs and MV. So the, but the, the, it was the old MSLC, so the, it's the, the maternity voices partnerships which are being backed up by 
by the NHS England and they're being given resources which they've never had before. So we, we struggled in our area to get our MSLC funded, but now that's all changed. So, that, so women, women who are using the service are driving changes like yourself. You know, you can have a voice and drive and there are people ready to help. So, and that's the same in midwifery. So I'm ready to help student midwives to make the change happen. Yeah. And, and Mark is and Claire is and, any, and all of us are we're all here to help you to do it but you'll be the ones that that change things and don't think you can't because you know thinking about the past I was just telling Rinnick on the way here I used to separate mums and babies I used to starve women in labour I used to give a, I, I used to give enemas I used to do episiotomies on every single prima gravid woman and and I used to um, uh, I used to bind women's breasts up because we'd separated mums and babies and so their breasts became engorged and they stayed in for four days after the baby, thinking it was amazing, but we, the baby was in the nursery, they were in another room and we gave them sleeping tablets and then the breasts got engorged and we used to learn how to bind them and use nappy pins. Now, when I tell student midwives that, they're like, what is that? And, but I think in 30 years' time, what will you be saying to students that we used to do today? So you have to think about the things that we're doing, that we're, we're totally going down the wrong path. Um, very often it's women's voices that are pushing it down that path. It's, you know, it's not necessarily organisations, it's choices that women are making. So there's a lot to do, but you can do it, and you've got the evidence now. I didn't have the evidence to make change, but you have it. So use it well and believe in yourselves that you can do it. I've just come back from spending three months working with women overseas in the Caribbean um, during antenatal and postnatal period. And, um, and I suppose I want to echo that real sense of what we do here makes a real big difference and how in the Caribbean um, the hospitals and healthcare systems very much looked to the UK as this is how we want to do things and this is a great model and we do things the, we do things the British way here. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of tangs of colonialism, which I won't dwell on, but, um, but very much they were looking for that healthcare that's free at point of use, and um, they're very interested in that. And, and yet, their healthcare for midwifery services was very much 30 years ago. So women were forced to shave before they came in to give birth. Um, there were forced enemas. Women were given um, synthetic oxytocin um, to keep labour going, quickly once they got to hospital one midwife described um, if a woman gave birth at home it was described to me as a big sin and the women's notes were sent in then to the hospital with with big red writing on um, so I suppose the impact of what we do here is actually you know it ripples much further out than we we might anticipate I'm not very good at wording my questions it might turn into a bit of an excited waffle We've, we've had change in childbirth, we've had better births, and we keep hearing about how in this country we're lucky to have the NHS, and we're lucky to have the choice of having independent midwives. And I'm not wanting to say that this is a fear that I have, because I don't think it would turn into a fear, but I want to be aware of the world that I'm going into as a student midwife when I qualify. And I want to be part of the change that Sheena mentioned, and I think that's a really exciting time to be training. And I want to make the the most out of my training and my time as a qualified midwife but at the same time we're hearing about midwives becoming so much more obstetric and the NMC and the challenges that they're enforcing on midwives and we have this other end of the scale where we are almost fearful of practicing and it's how to have the balance as a practitioner and have the support of the places we're supposed to get the support from and working under that fear and working enabling continuity and choice and I don't know how will we do that it's a big question I'm sorry we've got better births uh, we've got that piece of research about place of birth when was that a couple of years ago all very excited about that yeah um, but we've also got the dismantling of supervision of mid midwives and um, we're probably on a, it's a historic moment for, for women, uh, women's choice, because we could be on the cusp of losing uh, the choice that a woman has to have a truly independent midwife practitioner. So with that context in mind, could you address that point about 
practicing inside an NHS that seems to be uh, defensive. Okay, so um, I want to get in there I'd like better births to put me out of business. I'm a birth doula and I'd like it to put me out of business. Once continuity of care becomes an essential, not an ideal, then doulas aren't necessary anymore. Well, mostly. And I'd also like to be able to do what I do within the NHS. My single regret, biggest regret, the thing that, that I don't like about my job is I have to charge for it. Um, so if all of the pieces of better births are implemented with some tweaks, because a couple of things that I think that are stage one and we need to go for much further than that, um, effectively, I'd like to be out of business. One, there's lots of things that would stop me at the moment um, being able to do what I do within the NHS. And one is rotating people. I've chosen to specialise, and yet there's this massive drive to keep people moving. And that's disruptive. And that means that you get sorted somewhere and you think, actually, this is ideal for me. This is the, this is the skill set I've got. This comes naturally. I'm working here. This is great. And then you've got to move again. I've got now a skill set that's very, very wide within physiology and within home birth and with supporting physiology, even when you take it out of the home birth context. And I'm very good at that. But if there's something that we need to transfer into the hospital with, actually, I want somebody with a different skill set. So why do we keep forcing people to move all the time? It, it upsets the work-life balance. It, it disrupts their um, feelings of, of well-being and security. It makes people leave jobs. We shouldn't still be doing this. But there's, in terms of um, implementing um, some of the Better Births initiatives, yes, continuity of, of carer means a completely different working model for most midwives. And unfortunately, I think if you've, if you've had a lot of top-down um, um, changes implemented on you through your working life, especially if you've been a midwife for a long time, it, it might feel like another one and it might feel like it's all going to change again in another mm. five years when there's a new policy. And it, it, so it's, it's actually about um, showing people how rewarding this is as a way of, of working and of supporting them to do it effectively. Because you can't ask people to do this and then pull the rug out from under their feet by saying, oh, but in your spare time, can you go off and work on the obstetric unit? Yeah. In your spare time, can you go and do X, Y, and Z? It needs to be absolutely protected so that yeah. if you're doing continuity of care, you will have lulls. You will have periods of time when you're not actually effect looking like you're doing very much, but you'll have periods where you run off your feet. That's how it, it, there's an ebb and flow to it. And the way that I work means that when I've got a quiet period, I refresh, I do my, my um, other stuff, I do my family stuff, I do, I do um, continuous professional development. But when I'm really, really busy, I know it's only for a little while, so I can do that and, I can, and it doesn't upset me and it doesn't make me think I'm not doing this anymore. So it's about protecting staff, protecting resources. The Better Birth Report says we don't need more staff, mm, don't we? Um, but if you've got areas that are already, it, it does say that you does don't, it? yeah, at one point um, in oh, one of the appendices. Oh, you case loading? Yeah, right. you don't need more staff for case oh, loading. Sorry. And actually, if you've got an area of um, um, an obstetric unit that's constantly having to pull people in from other areas, you can't protect case loading staff. So you, we need to sort that out as well. Mm. And the problem is you still need to run the, the service, yeah. don't you? So, so you're asking how you can do what you expected to do with all these things happening. Um, but I'd like to say to you that even though it was different when I was training, it was very, very different, um, we still had constraints and we still had difficult things to face. And we were, we, we were, um, we were you know, when I was a young midwife, it was, it was okay to be bullied. I mean, it wasn't okay, it was actually horrific, but no one paid any attention. If you were bullied, you just put up with it, and you were bullied constantly on a daily basis. So we had those kind of things to face, and um, you know, as a student midwife, we were left to run the delivery suite while the midwives uh, sat and drank tea and did the hair, and, and war betide you if you knocked on the door to get a, a qualified midwife to come and help you. Um, because you got the odd one who would do it willingly, but mainly you just did it all on your own. So there were all these things going on. I'm only telling you so because the point is that where, where, whatever era you train in, you will have different pressures, but you'll also have huge opportunities. So it's about managing the things that are difficult 
and they do get really I mean I even have difficult things now and I don't work for the NHS and I have situations that are absolutely unbelievably hard for me as a midwife um, one happened this very week and Rinica knows about it and it's fa- I'm facing situations that are really difficult but the thing is you have to f- always try to focus on the brilliant things that are happening and, and, and take those opportunities to move things because you've chosen this career. To be honest, to get into midwifery now is like getting to the moon. If you get into midwifery, you've almost got to the moon because it's so hard. So you are the chosen one. So it's about how do you use that? You know, think about the day that you went for your interview and what you said at your interview. And it's about living that out now. And you can do it, but you have to face difficult times. And there's always going to be challenges. So even when you're 60 like me, there's still going to be challenges. It's not going to end. So it's how you face those challenges. And, and But work with the positives to get things moving. Okay. I, I think in your question, I, I, I definitely heard something around, well, you know, you, you, you're faced with these external re- regulators such as yeah. the NMC, but also the internal regulators, uh, governance units, uh, um, yeah. uh, rules and guidelines and, and the way we do things. And you, you're trying to, in the midst of all that, look after one person. Mm. And, and that's what it comes down to, the person, the woman you're, you're looking, yeah. looking, da- looking after. And that woman's right um, uh, that one's human rights <laughs> so, yeah, in terms of being treated with respect being treated with dignity mm. being t- and being allowed to make allowed, that's the only the, t- the only time I will, I will allow that word in return to it being allowed to make our own choices um, and I think that there's a very strong uh, I've been thinking about this recently, I was talking, talking to Shino it's all, uh, on the way over about how choice and consent uh, you know, they're almost t- t- flip sides of a, of a coin you can't really have consent without choice yeah mm. uh, and if you don't have consent uh, well then you know that's the basis of everything we do as, yeah. as as healthcare practitioners that we have consent for what we do and an informed consent yeah and that's, you know and i think that ultimately so the the choice and the decision is the woman i don't like the term shared decision making because that suggests that the the practitioner has, has as much to invest in the decision as the person making the decision. That's not your role as, a, as, a, as an obstetrician or midwife. Your role is to inform and allow that choice and consent to happen. And therefore that, you're fully protected by the law in this. And that's the point I wanted to make really, that you know, human rights law is completely applicable to maternity care. And that woman has the human rights, you know, right, and human rights will continue even after Brexit. <laughs> human Rights Act in will remain in place, you know. So, and the woman has those rights, and that, and that. So that has to be our primary, uh, uh, primary concern. We've heard about the NMC. You know, we know all about the NMC. What, what's happened with supervision and independent midwives, and we absolutely detest that. I know, and I do. You know, sort of, it really hurts to the core of everything that I, I, I stand for. Um, but we have to look on another side of it and think about the fact that now we've got Mary Renfrew looking at the education standards and Helen Shallow. They're my only hope at the moment. Um, and, and that's fine to not edit that out because I'm really, really passionate about helping them to, to get the right standards for midwifery education. So if you can, so that's an opportunity. So whilst we've got this major threat that's happened with the NMC, we've also got this huge opportunity. So that's the way, that's the way I would advise you to keep thinking. Okay, so we've got these difficult situations, but we've also got these brilliant things. So how do we make the brilliant things happen? in the best way that will make services better, make your job better, make services better for women and families. Um, I was just going to go back to something Sheena said earlier, which was about celebrating the things that are really good. Um, And we do hear stories of times when it's gone really well, and we hear stories of where there's been great uh, continuity of care. Um, Some of the women that we work with at the Bankside Project uh, talk about the Hamler team of midwives here in Leeds, who do a fantastic job of following women all the way through their um, pregnancy and birth. And so the women do feel that they are getting continued continuity of care they feel like they're seeing the same person they feel able to trust somebody that they're coming into contact with on a regular basis so there are places where there are stuff that's really worth celebrating hold those things hold those things 
when the Leeds home birth team was working really, really well, that's what they had. They were seeing um, women um, as soon as they decided that they wanted to have a home birth, they were, they were being seen, then they would be taken, their antenatal care would be taken over by the home birth team. Um, they would be seen, they would usually, um, when they called um, to say they were, they were birthing, could they have a midwife, they would usually know who was going to be coming um, or who, the, no, I've met the person before. Um, and then the postnatal care. That's what's missing at the moment. And if you can put that back, your home birth rate will rise on its own without you having to do anything else. Um, but if you take that away, then home birth rates will fall. So it's, it goes back to protecting continuity, protecting staff in those kinds of teams. I feel very, very fortunate in the position at the moment. Um, I'm a first year student about to go out on placement and we do case holding right from the start. So therefore I feel really, really sort of passionate that I want to get this right. Um, but I'm also feeling very overwhelmed. So I'm really wondering what, what advice you can give me as to what's the most important um, attribute that I can bring for these two ladies in the first year to have um, you know, the most amazing experience and it actually end up being a positive experience rather than a restricted experience you know, using the constraints that we've got at the moment. I'm wondering what's overwhelming you, and maybe that's my ignorance because I'm not a student midwife and never have been, um, but all I'm thinking is there are two women who are so lucky to have you looking after them and, and being a part of that model. I guess it's natural at this stage that you're going to be thinking, oh, am I going to be doing enough and what more should I be doing? But just remember what you're already giving them just by having that opportunity is amazing. You might really, really, really enjoy it. I did. Um, the, when I was training, um, it wasn't until was it second year, I think, um, and we had, I think I had 18 um, women um, in my caseload, um, and I got to most of the birthings, I think, and I loved it. I think it's because it's so early on in the training. I don't want to do something um, that would never negatively impact the woman. Um, be it at the beginning, middle, end, um, and I agree, you know, it's something I'm so excited about, but I think because I'm so passionate about it, I want to get it right, and I want it to have a positive impact and me be able to develop on that year by year. Um, so I think it's really just the getting started. So you'll always be working with a mentor, um, so you're not going to be off, you know, on your own. So it's possible to take a little step back and actually listen to the woman um, and support her so what is it she wants? What is it she's after? What is it that if you see that she's not understanding something to try and sort of advocate for that? But actually, you're in a really fortunate position at the moment because it's not you delivering the care. So what you can do is be actually a real midwife, and even though you're a first-year student, because you can be with that woman and take a more holistic approach to what's going on. And actually... It's, it's so rewarding. You'll really enjoy it. I'm sure you will. And, and as a mum, of, I've got four children, and um, I had student midwives present with me for two of my children's births, and they were my favourite people in the whole world because they could absolutely be with me in that moment, and they weren't worrying about paperwork or anything else. They were just there and listened and supported and held, and they were, they were brilliant I've got a question about postnatal care yeah. and um, I've been really fortunate that I've had continuity with all three of my children and extended postnatal care as well for various different reasons. Um, as a first year student I've been shocked and dismayed I think about the lack of focus that's given to postnatal mm. care and especially uh, for first time mothers that might be needing that extra help to just have a phone call um, is really shocking. How did it get to that stage and how does it get reversed? Right. It's a good point in the light of better births and the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths uh, in terms of postnatal mental health. So, £250. You know, that's the standard tariff at the moment for postnatal care. What is that going to provide? Um, so it's funding, um, primarily. It's also a lack of an overview about if you scrimp here, you're going to spend there. There's, there's no... It feels like everything's in a silo. Um, and so there's no looking forward at, you know, this is gonna have a cost implication further on down the line for other areas of the NHS. So because it's not a maternity budget issue, the low breastfeeding rates and all the rest of the things that have a knock-on consequence um, from um, um, reduced or non-existent um, postnatal care, 
because there's not that strategic overview in terms of funding, we'll continually underfund um, postnatal care because we're not seeing it in context. I agree with that. We're not seeing it in context, and one of the contexts we're not we're not seeing in is actually the medicalisation of postnatal care. I, I, you know, I, every time I go on the birth suite, I have this 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 thing looking at women who who have had normal births and who are still so the default the default remains going to a postnatal ward. The default for me is going home. <laughs> but to go home, you need to have that infrastructure to provide that proper. Uh, and it's, it's this, you know, this, this, this thing again that you can't have that infrastructure whilst you're still paying for the infrastructure of postnatal wards. Yeah. So you're going to have to have a, a, a time of transition, a time of double funding to get to a point. And this is, you know, uh, yeah, I'm not always so, so keen on the way things are done in my home country. And uh, I've been here 32 years, that's probably why. But, um, but you know, Postnatal care is something the Dutch get right. (laughs) And because the default is you're at home and you get not just midwifery support, but you get home help support because it's recognised that, you know, that you need to be with your baby in those those first weeks. So it is about turning the mentality around, you know. know, So if you are having your your birth in in a birth, an obstetric unit or in a midwifery unit, that still doesn't mean that once you've had your birth, you can't go home. Mm. Let's provide the support. I think the feedback from mothers that, or families really that we see um, or that, that I come into contact with is that their maternity care is excellent and that they have felt really well supported and encouraged through, through birth and it's this switch onto the postnatal ward and suddenly they, they feel unsupported, they are noticing a lack of staff, they're not knowing what to do, they're hearing different pieces of advice from every single person that walks through the door. Um, and I think, I think families feel awash, actually, from the moment they leave delivery suite. To me, this is the next big thing, okay? We've done, there's been money, there's been research on um, labour and what we need for good labour, the environments we need, the staffing that we need, but there hasn't yet been attention to the research on postnatal and it's as big in terms of mortality and that baby's future and the generations to come. The research is there. It's coming through very, very thick and fast as to how important this is and the kind of environments that new mothers need and new babies need. They need calm, peaceful, stress-free environments with joy in the mix as well as relaxation. Now, the NHS needs to address that or we're going to have all kinds of um, collateral damage, which we're having already, especially in mental health. The biggest killer in maternity of mothers, never mind babies. So I'm quite excited, and I would be if I was a student midwife right now, because this is the next big thing, getting the NHS to recognise that money needs to be put into postnatal care, not just to reduce um, perinatal mental health levels, but to make us a healthier nation. It's absolutely crucial, but the research still... We, we need lots of books now to come out and lots of talking and activity, and, and we need you to go back to your workplaces and say, well, why is postnatal care so poor? You know, your innocent questions as a student. Well, I'm interested. Why is there no money going into postnatal care? Why is it I don't see the woman, you know, more than three days after she's had her baby? This is the, this is the thing we need to really be talking about now, I think, and it's very, very exciting because there's so much potential. I mean, in my lifetime, they've reduced... I've seen it all, you know, sort of go from, from a visit every other day for 10 days and then, and then a visit every three days until certain... You know, it sort of was a set... Clinic at three days in some areas. Out to a clinic at three days. At three days, yeah. I'd like to ask about induction of labour. Um, I'm just started as a student midwife but I've, I've been an antenatal teacher for the NCT for six years and I think just thinking back over most of the people I've met in the NCT if they've had a difficult by their terms time um, often it's started with an induction and what I've also sort of noted sort of working as a, a, a service user rep is that induction rates seem to be climbing fairly quickly. So many people having sort of extra scans in pregnancy because of uh, growth protocols and things like that. And I just wondered what your thoughts on where we're headed that way. Okay, was it nationally about 30, 30 to 35%? 
I find this a very, very difficult area because you're absolutely right. The, um, the induction rate is, is going up exponentially at the moment, and that's due to um, the, uh, the strategy to reduce stillbirths uh, to by about 50% yeah. by, uh, by 2030. So we've introduced a number of, of things nationally um, a number of changes really um, that have led to that the, the concern about growth and the guidelines around which women need the extra growth scans um, um, which is based on some evidence right? yeah. um, and the concern about fetal movements um, which there is very little evidence really to base policy on but which has led to a policy I think in most units where if a woman um, uh, reports reduced fetal movements on, on more than two occasions in she's term that induction is carried out those two things have led to an increase in, in induction rates. Um, and it's, there are varying views about whether that's actually leading to a reduction in, in stillbirth rates. We do know that with stillbirths, of course, that we know that growth restriction, that, that of babies that are born stillborn, that a large number of those are, are growth restricted. Um, but what, what we don't know, actually, is the intervention we've now introduced, whether they will stop that. So this is yet another example about uh, in, in maternity care where we introduce something new uh, and then... I don't know how long this one will take uh, before we then uh, evaluate whether it's actually made a difference. And we know how difficult it is to change an intervention, don't we? Because we know that CTGs were introduced in the 70s and the 80s. We're still doing them, even though we know that they don't improve outcome. <laughs> and speaking as a psychologist, I think what's also interesting about inductions is the impact it has on people psychologically. Um, so I work a lot with women who are genuinely stressed and upset and worried, who will say to me they're not sleeping just because they've been offered an induction. And I just think we also don't really know what impact that level of stress has on a woman who's full term. Are we actually delaying spontaneous onset of labor by worrying her, by offering her an induction? Um, so again, if we don't take care of the psychological state of people, we're not looking after them physically. The two come together. Research is very, very clear now. You can't separate them. And if an NHS is going to take care of people, it has to look at the psychological impact of what it's doing, as well as the physical, and take into account placebo effect, nocebo effect, and all that kind of stuff as well. I think induction of labour is going to be the thing that we look back on in 30 years and say, what on earth were we doing? Why were we doing that to these women? We, we receive quite a lot of inquiries from women who are either looking to book with us or who are looking for advocacy. We do quite a lot of signposting, and it's induction of labour. Um, um, I've been told I have to be induced is, is the thing that gets my blood boiling. Um, and then we start to say, well, who said that, and in what context, and, and, and did they offer you a choice? And, and were you, you know, there's, there's a nice guideline that says it should be an offer, not just a booking, um, but also that there were other alternatives. Were they discussed with you? No. Um, so we do, I do field quite a lot of calls where people will, will, women will call and say, this is what's happening. Um, and it's often in later pregnancy, so, so by that point they feel like they're being backed into a corner and it goes back to this um, uh, not being given choice, not being given information. But I think induction blurb is our biggie. Um, for longer gestations, without any regard of what else is going on in this clinical picture and what's your family history. Yeah. You know, did you and your mum and your, and your um, sisters and everybody else all have longer gestations. Well, in that case, it's probably physiologically appropriate for you. Um, is there anything else going on in this that means that there's a concern over fetal well-being? No. Then why are we turning this low-risk, if you want to use those, those phrases, um, pregnancy into a high-risk birth, simply because we're not looking at the wider picture for this particular person um, and giving them appropriate information? Yeah, I agree. I think it's the, big, the biggest, one of the biggest... Um sort of pressures at the moment on maternity services and women's lives but I also think that I mean a couple of weeks ago I was at Tommy's midwives headquarters in London doing a Facebook live and listening to the apps they're absolutely full-on with and several other organizations our mama academy about fetal movements so they're drumming it into women all the time you must monitor your movements you must monitor your movements and so there's all these messages going out there which again are worrying women um, uh, worrying, uh, uh, constantly worrying about the fetal movements. And I'm not saying that it's not right to monitor your movements. This is, I'm not, completely not saying that. But this is a different thing. This is a big pressure to monitor your movements. And I also have some obstetrician friends who I sometimes speak at the same uh, conferences with who, who put 
put the other side of the coin saying women come to me and say I'm not feeling my baby move I want to be induced and so we we also know that that's happening as well and sometimes my daughter's friends say that some of their friends say well if you want inducing just say baby's not moving so when the people the women that Claire sees I would imagine are the ones who are challenging the system but there are a lot of women who want to be induced so we've also got generations of women who, who, who want their baby when they want it. You know, they don't want to wait. And so it's like the, it's, we sort of have one end of the spectrum and then we have the other end where women are very happy to be induced because they don't realise what, what it means. But I think it goes beyond, uh, it's not just about risk. I, th- I think it is about that control. You know, so you were talking about uh, women are wanting to decide when their babies are born and they're wanting to decide how their babies are born. And, um, and perhaps it's indicative of, of it being societal pressures to, to be in control of everything, you know, down to the minutiae. You know, we talk about helicopter parenting and we talk about all these different aspects of life where, where we do want to be in control of everything. And we're at a stage uh, during pregnancy and birth and in those early stages of being a new parent where everything is out of control and for me I notice families desperately trying to cling on to something that they can control within this crazy chaotic time that they have never experienced before. Mm. I came across an article in the Guardian online that was um, entitled Attachment Parenting the best way to bring up a child or maternal masochism and I've just completed a course with Fran, I have an eight and a half month old baby, and we talked about good enough parenting, but I still have that sort of maternal conflict about, you know, I would, I would do anything to keep her happy, but I also have to keep myself sane. So I just wondered about the panel's views on that. And I think also parenting to me, I think different styles of parenting might be more about your attitude rather than what you do. I wondered what everyone thought. I mean, if we think of parenting, um, parenting starting um, um, when the baby is still in, in utero, mm. <laughs> when you're still uh, being being pregnant, then that brings that that whole issue and of um, what rights um, does the does the fetus have? Mm. Um, and I, I think what I think is very interesting about that is that um, the understanding that that practitioners have on this is, is generally quite poor. Uh, um, because in the UK, the law is very, very clear. Mm. Yeah, um, the the fetus does not have any rights until it's until it's born. Um, so it is the mother's choice, and there's mother's choice to make that individual decision about what what you know if she's putting her baby at risk or not. And yet, still, so often we find that people saying things to women such as you know you're putting yourself yourself ahead of your baby. I don't think any woman does that. Uh, I think when they're looking after themselves, also looking at looking after the Baby. But I just wanted to bring that out because I think it's just important to, to, to remember that you know ultimately the woman makes uh, makes the decision and that and the baby does not have any rights. I think there can be a tendency um, by healthcare pro- um, professionals involved in maternity to assume that there's a golden path and they know where it is, um, and that's whether you're pregnant or whether you're birthing or whether it's postnatal yeah. or whether it's parenting choices. I think that that cuts through. There is no golden path. You have to pick your own. And what you need is hand holding through it with support and information and advice. Um, probably not even advice. Um, but, but there is no golden path. And whatever signposting is there now to indicate that there's this particular path is going to be different in five years' time yeah. because everything changes. Oh, God, I could talk about this for days. Fascinating question. Absolutely fascinating question. And I think, you know, I, there's so much I want to say, but one of the things is that I do wonder if there's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that not so long ago, babies were left at the bottom of the garden to cry. And I do wonder what impact that had on us psychologically. Um, And attachment parenting, I wonder sometimes if that's an attempt to overcompensate. I do think, and research backs me in this, of course I've chosen the research and so have the researchers, um, that the welfare of the parents is so important. And I think we're in danger because mothers care and want to do their absolute best, will put themselves last. And I think as health professionals and as friends and relatives, we want to put the mother first in some way, because she'll never not put the baby first. So we need to put the mother first, because a a stress-free mother is good for the baby, probably more so than the benefits of the come-with-attachment parenting. So I, maybe it's a little bit um, un-PC to say this, but I'm not as interested in attachment parenting for a minute as I am in the welfare of the mother and the father, and that's my priority. 
And if my, the advice I give to help a mother through a difficult time doesn't go with what's best for the baby, do you know what? That at, the, at that point in time, if mother struggling is not my priority. I think there's two things there. I think we will never get it completely right. It is too high a bar to say we are going to be perfect at being parents. It's just not achievable. And it's not fair on our children to attempt that either. You know, I know at school, children are, are marked in green. So green is for growth because it's... And that's it mistakes are marked in green because they're the good things they're showing we're learning you know and the same with parenting you know we're going to make mistakes we're going to mess stuff up whether they're two months old or they're uh, my eldest 14 I feel constantly in uh, making mistakes with him but it's good that's how they learn that's how we learn um and the other thing I wanted to say was that I think there's a huge model about the word attachment and I think we have this sense of what is babies who are children who have got good attachment, so are well attached, have good responsive parenting, so warm uh, parents that meet their children's needs as, as much as they can, you know, children that, that are responded to, whether that's when in infancy or as they grow. There is a huge difference between that good attachment and attachment parenting. They are not the same thing, and I think there is a huge model that says that they are. So thank you very much, everybody. Um, I'm hoping that that was useful and interesting and, yeah, good, lots of nodding. In fact, I think pretty much everyone in the room has just sat here going, nod, 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 yeah. all the way through the whole thing. So that is brilliant. Yeah, um, it's a wrap. Yeah, not much of a debate then, was there, really? I thought it might be a bit more heated than that. Um, no, it's, it's lovely. So thank you, Sheena and Mia and Claire, Renika and Fran. Especially thank you, Fran, for letting us have the premises to come and do this in and thank you Mark. Thank you Pete. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.